that. As was read for us in Hebrews chapter 3, the, the book of Hebrews should be fascinating to us in that what you'll notice the writer of Hebrews does is continues to give encouragement after encouragement, and then he'll stop and he'll wait a minute and go, now let me warn you about something. I want to fill you up with this good news of the gospel and what it means with Jesus on the cross. And then he'll kind of stop and go, but watch out for something. And then he'll give you the strong warning. And then he'll come back and go, now let me fill you up some more of these great things about Jesus. And he'll stop and go, now, warning time. And that's where we're at right now. We have spent from the from chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, these great news about who we are in Christ. Christ is our brother. We are in the house of God. We have this privileged position. We are not merely servants, but we are family. Beautiful pictures of who we are and all of the blessings, what it means to be in Christ. And then he stops and goes... Now let me touch on that a minute and give you a warning. And you'll notice in your in your Bible in Hebrews 3 verse 7, he goes with a quotation at this point. And the quotation comes from Psalm 95, uh, as was just read for us. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works these 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest and so you'll notice he he gives a quotation and what he uses in the quotation is a reminder about the history of Israel Israel saw all the works of God and Our work in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy has all been groundwork for us doing Hebrews on Sunday morning that we've seen that. We have followed the history of Israel and we have seen how they saw the wonders of God and the miracles. We saw how God provided for them in the wilderness, how they were given water and food. They were always provided for and that God came down in magnificent ways before them. And here, in spite of the fact that they were in the wilderness and saw all these things, what did they do? text tells us that they hardened their hearts, verse 8. It says, do not harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts. And I want you to think about what exactly did that look like? How were their hearts hardened in the wilderness? What did that look like? So they didn't trust in God. Ultimately, what it boiled down for them is that they did not trust in God. They did not believe that God was going to care for them. They did not believe that God was going to provide for them. And everything that God did for them never changed them. It didn't mean anything to them. And so because even though they saw God do these mighty works, nothing was changed in heart and they did not trust God every time something came along. And one of the staggering things that you see in the wilderness as they're journeying with God is ultimately we continue to hear their desire to go back to Egypt. 
We don't want to go to the promised land. We do not want to go forward with God. We do not want what God is promising for us. Let's go back to Egypt. We want to go back into the things that we had in the past. And which is, of course, staggering when you read Exodus and realize what they had in the past was slavery and oppression and the death of their children and all kinds of terrible things. But we want to go back because we remember the leeks and the cucumbers and the things like that. And thus the quotation in verses 10 and 11 make perfect sense. The condemnation is deserved. Israel was not allowed to enter the rest. And two reasons are explicitly stated there in in verse 10 and in verse 11. They always go astray in their heart. And I could have 30 minutes on that, which I won't. Just think about that. They always go astray in their heart. I won't make a whole sermon out of that, but just, wow. I always go astray in their heart, and they don't know God's ways. Which, think about that statement. They saw all kinds of things about God, and they were given the Ten Commandments, and the law was spoken to them, and Moses revealed it to them, and they didn't know the ways of God, and they always go astray in their hearts. Now, all of that is said not as a history lesson. This isn't, oh, by the way, remember all those things that happened in Exodus and Numbers and all that kind of stuff. Verse 12, notice here's the big deal. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I want you to think about that for a minute. I suppose if I took a poll right now and I asked you, do you have an evil, unbelieving heart? (laughs) and we'd all go no (laughs) we're here how could you challenge us and say you have an evil unbelieving heart we love the Lord we're here aren't we we're worshiping God what a powerful yet strange thing to say by the writer of Hebrews to a bunch of Christians I want to warn you about something I want to make sure that you do not have an evil, unbelieving heart. Wow. And in particular, notice the connection is Israel was part of the congregation. And they had an evil, unbelieving heart. And they saw all the things that God did. And they had an evil, unbelieving heart. The writer of Hebrews is laying groundwork for what these verses are going to do that we're going to look at this morning. Is just showing, I want you to be aware of the possibility that we can have evil, unbelieving hearts and not even know it. Because what we do is we look at the external. Well, we're part of the congregation. We're here. We're fine. We're good. We have the laws of God. We worship. None of us have an unbelieving heart. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want you to hold on to that for a minute because actually you might. And what I want you to see is he's going to show us how that is. And he's going to show us how he does that and how we could have that and how that could be possible in almost what I think we would potentially consider a a backward way. But he has to do this to help us understand because did anybody in Israel think they had an evil, unbelieving heart? No, and they all fell. And so he's going to go, okay, here's the warning. Now, the warning's going to go backward because notice he's going to start with the prevention. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So notice what he does here. He says, okay, here is the prevention from an unbelieving heart. He hasn't convinced you yet that you have one. He will in a minute, trust me. But first he's going to give you, here's how we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. And of all the things that you would think about for a moment, of all the ways that you might consider, how do you prevent having an evil, unbelieving heart? What would you put on the list? And notice what he puts on the list is you get together every day, all day and encourage each other. That's what he just said. Verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's his big prevention. Here's what you need to do. You need each other to keep from having this evil unbelieving heart to keep your heart from being hardened you absolutely need each other did you expect that did you expect that answer of all things but I want you to think about that for a minute because right now I think in our culture in our Christian world that we breathe We have a tendency to not believe this. We have a tendency to believe that we can be independent. I'm fine. I don't need other Christians. I don't need to gather. We don't need to worship together. We don't need special studies. We don't need Bible studies. We don't need Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. We don't need... I can be just fine all by myself. I can be the Christian island. And I will just have my own spirituality. And I will just be able to serve God all by myself because I'm that kind of strong, amazing Superman Christian. And I want you to see the writer of Hebrews says, you're lying to yourself. (laughs) You are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And what he's trying to underscore is you need to be together. You need to get together. You need to be creating opportunities to be together. And I don't think the intention of verse 13 when he says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Well, that's 24-7. I mean, okay, when is it not called today? (laughs) Uh, That's constant. That's never going to stop. And I don't think the point is, okay, everybody quit your jobs and we are going to have 24-7 worship. Casey, we're going to have to fire up some sermons and here we go. And nobody's ever going to leave. That's not the idea. But the idea is to strongly emphasize and underscore, you don't understand how much we need to be together. You don't understand how much we need each other. This is not a pursuit of merely individuals doing our own thing and we're going to be fine. We need to be together encouraging each other, exhorting each other, pushing each other, correcting when needed, coming alongside and helping when needed, bearing each other's burdens in doing this. Which allow me to 
make a point about that because I do have a grave concern in what I see is that in the effort to see the importance of us getting together I think too often Christians think that simply the goal is to be together and that's it so as long as we get together and watch football we've done this If we get together and eat food and have potlucks and, you know, do entertaining things and stuff like that. See, we've done that. That's not the idea. The idea is not we just need to spend time together. So let's spend more time together and create a bunch of opportunities so that we will spend more time together. And so, you know, at two o'clock, everybody, we're going to all go at the park, you know, that kind of thing. It's not the idea. Notice that there is a purposeful getting together. That when we are together, when we are spending time together, it is not just simply, well, we're occupying the same space, talking about the weather and the dolphins and whatever else is on the top of our minds. That's not doing what this says. Nor is doing what this says, well, we ate together and we had coffee and fun and entertainment and yay us. It was a good old time. It's not it. Encouraging each other. An exhorting of each other has to happen. That's the purpose of getting together. The purpose of getting together is not just simply to get together, but that we use the opportunities to push each other along. That's what's supposed to be said and that's what's supposed to be done. That's why Bible-centered gathering is critical. It's not just simply, let's see how many times we can get together, but we need the Word of God at the center of that so that we can be encouraged and exhorted to go forward. That's why it is in the Bible studies. That's why it is in worship. That is why it's in sermons and things like that. Because we need that so we, we can grow together and encourage each other together. It's not just simply, well, we're in the room drinking coffee. Aren't you encouraged? <laughs> no. It must be with the Word of God at the hub. And I say that because I'm just desperately concerned at how I see the taking away of opportunities of God to be at the center just because we're still together. Being together is not the goal. Being together with God's Word encouraging and exhorting is the goal. That's what's intended. That's what's going to help us and give us what we need. And I hope that we would just think about that idea. In this world of independence, to really hear this, you have a responsibility to encourage and exhort and help everybody you see in this room. In fact, I'd say it's your God-ordained job. And maybe even harder... That you have to allow others be an exhorter and encourager and helper of you. Because notice that's his remedy in verse 13. You don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Then let other people into your life and help you and encourage you. And you get into other people's lives and help them and encourage them. 
That's why we need to be together. And that's why it needs to be gospel-centered, God-word-centered gatherings. Because that's what we're going to use to encourage each other and become more of what God wants us to be so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's talk about that line for a minute. There at the end of verse 13. That none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Just just soak that phrase in for a minute. Know what he just said? Sin lies. (laughs) Sin lies to us. The deceitfulness of sin. It's lying to you. It's lying to me. And I submit to you, one of the things that it's lying to us about is not only lying to us, I'm fine, I don't need anybody, I've got this, I'm serving God, I am that Superman Christian island, and I don't need anybody, it's lying to you. Sin's lying to you. But you know how sin really lies to us? That your sin's okay, and you're doing just fine, and you're in control, and you can stop at any time. I've got this. I'm good. You know, yeah, I know I've got these things over here, but I could stop that anytime. It's no problem. I'm in control. I'm serving God. I want you to realize that sin deceives. And as sin lies to us, it's hardening the heart. Now, I know this is very countercultural right now to say that your heart is lying to you, but I want you to hear God tell you that the heart you have is lying to you. Here's here's, uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. So you think about that. (laughs) Here's God. You know, the thing that you're listening to to make all of your life decisions, you probably shouldn't be listening to that because it's lying to you. That's what God just said. We're in a world right now, I listen to my heart, and I listen to my emotions, and I listen to my logic, and I listen to my way of thinking. Remember, in ancient days, heart represented the whole being, mind and emotion, both. And he's saying, your way of thinking is actually deceitful. Your way of feeling is actually deceitful. It has to be conformed to the ways of God. And that's what's supposed to be something that would remind us of this again and again is the reason we have the Word of God, the reason why we need each other, and the reason why we need to be encouraged is because left to ourselves, left independently, what are we going to do? But listen to our own worldview and our own way of thinking and our own logic and our own emotions and our own feeling, and you're going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and end up with this unbelieving heart. So we need each other to come into each other's lives and say, here we come from all of these different backgrounds and all of these different cultures and all of these different upbringings and all of these different beliefs. And we bring it all together, slam it all in the middle and go, okay, here's what the word of God says. So that means we've got to change how we think and change what we believe. Change how we feel about these kinds of things. Because our hearts and our minds are ultimately deceitful. That's why I love Ephesians 4, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the Gentiles who are futile in their thinking and darkened in their understanding. That's our natural bent. The way we were raised and the way we're brought up and the culture and the air that we breathe is completely wrong and foreign to the ways of God. And left to ourselves, we're going to allow the world to inform us rather than God's Word. Ultimately, 
the deceptive power of sin cannot be allowed to change us. As you see in verse 14, we've come to share in Christ. That just takes everything in chapter 2, 5 through 3, 6 and puts it in a ball and says, we're all fellow partakers in Christ. We're all joined together. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are these sons of God who are in the house. We're enjoying family before God with God as our father, Christ as our brother. And we're sharing in that. And as we share in that, we must come into each other's lives and exhort each other. Correct each other, help each other, bear one another's words to do all that. Now he's going to convince you and I that we actually do have evil unbelieving hearts. Watch what he does. Now verse 15. As it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he reminds them of Psalm 95 again. This is just the focal point of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the rebellion. Now he stops right here and he's got an important word about this, which is interesting. Today is going to be a big deal throughout this section. As long as it's today, we have an issue. That's why today we need to encourage one another as long as it's called today. Because today there is the warning of rebellion, the warning of a hard heart. Now look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Let's just stop there. Is what the writer does now is he says, I want you to consider Israel. Who was it who heard and yet rebelled? Who was it who who provoked God for 40 years? Who was it that God swore they would not enter His rest? Who are these people? And we've seen. These are people who have experienced the amazing salvation of God. Aren't they? Think about that first generation. They saw Moses come in. Plagues, miracles, parting of the Red Sea, wiping out of the Egyptians, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day as the glory of God leads them through the wilderness. Water's coming out of a rock. Water's coming out of trees, making it sweet that was bitter. We have food that just suddenly appears in the morning and just laying there. And when that's not enough, one day we're going to just have quail as far as the eye can see. God's just providing, providing. Never mind when He asks, who heard? Think about Mount Sinai. Where God says, I'm going to come down and meet my people. And woe did He come down as the mountain is shaking and burning and smoking. And God speaks the Ten Commandments as the trumpet sound of God's voice is just blaring so loudly that the people are trembling. We're told in the New Testament, even Moses said, I tremble in fear for what God has done. And who are the people who fell in the wilderness? The people who experienced salvation from, ex- from, from Egypt in the Exodus and saw all the miracles of God. 
I'm not sure if we catch it as strongly when we're in numbers that the writer of Hebrews wants us to catch it here. They all fell but two. They all heard the voice in the mountain and saw the wonders of God and saw the miracles and saw the parting of the Red Sea and saw the water and saw the food and they all fell except two. You realize that's 603,548 people against two. A lot. And notice what the text said. In verse 16, he said, they rebelled. In verse 17, he said, they sinned. And in verse 18, he said, they disobeyed. Now watch verse 19. Because here's the boom that the writer of Hebrews pulls. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. I would have expected because they were horrible rebels. That's not where he wants to go with this. This brings us back to what we saw in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest any of you have what? An evil, unbelieving heart. He now goes to the example of Israel and says, they experienced the salvation of God coming out of Egypt. They saw the miracles of God and yet they sinned, they rebelled, and they disobeyed. Please think about verse 19. Why? Because they did not believe. Because of unbelief. This is where the writer of Hebrews hurts us. Unbelief is the source of disobedience. That's the point he's drawing. That's what he's done in connecting these dots like this. Is often when we talk about sin and we are going to deal with sin, we often are actually talking about symptoms. And we start addressing the symptoms of the problem, the actions, the external behaviors, the things that we are doing wrong. And notice that the writer of Hebrews says, I need you to go underneath that if you are going to solve the problem. The problem is not the external sins, though they be wrong. The real problem is faith. Sin is the symptom. Unbelief is the root. A lack of faith is why we why they sinned. Now think about Israel in the wilderness and think about how true that is. Why did they fail? Why did they fail in the wilderness? Because they didn't believe. They did not fully believe or trust in what God said. Every time there was a difficulty... Did they, okay, we know God can do it this time. 
because he did it yesterday when it came to the food or the manna or the water and we saw the red no every time a difficulty arose what happened they didn't trust God they disobeyed rebelled and sinned because ultimately they did not believe they ultimately did not believe They did not believe in the Lord. They did not believe that God was going to provide. They did not believe that God was with them. They lost all of the promises of God and they lost the future blessings of rest because they did not believe in what God said. All right, so let's get to the big so what. Since sin is really the fruit and unbelief is ultimately the root What we must do to be warned against this evil, unbelieving heart is ultimately address the unbelief, not just the sin. We need to address ultimately that it's unbelief and not just the sin. Let me prove it if Israel's not enough of a proof. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Because they didn't believe what God said. Right? If you just boil it down, take away the action. I don't care if the fruit looked good or any of that stuff. Just boil it down. Why'd they sit? Did not believe what God said. Didn't believe it. Satan said, God's holding out on you. (laughs) Didn't believe what God was offering. Let me flip it then ultimately to the positive as well. Think about the life of Abraham. Why does Abraham obey and do something so difficult as being willing to offer up his only son Isaac on that altar? If Adam and Eve are the negative expression, why did they disobey unbelief? Why did Abraham obey and go to that mountain and was ready to sacrifice Isaac? Well, rather me tell you, how about the Apostle Paul tell you? Romans 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's the issue. Disobedience comes from unbelief. Obedience comes from belief. That's what the writer of Hebrews is giving us here. So I ask you, when we fail to obey, that you would please start this analysis. What about God are we choosing to not believe? When we allow ourselves to sin, when we cave into temptation, when we do what we know we ought not do, the thing to address is not simply saying in your mind, I've got to stop doing that. You're right, you do. (laughs) But get deeper than that. What about God are you not believing in? That is bringing that out. What about his promises do you not believe? 
That's one of the things that I think is so powerful about the very first sin in the Bible. Because I believe that's probably the hub of most sins, maybe all, but certainly most. The serpent told Eve, essentially, God is holding out on you from you enjoying something. He knows as soon as you eat of this, your eyes will be open, you'll be wise. And God doesn't want that. He's holding out on you. Why do we sin? I think often that's the answer. God's keeping me from something. I want to enjoy these things. And God is holding me back and keeping me from something very important. We're like children who want to run in the street because we think our parents are holding us back from something so wonderful as playing in the street. You know, from the child's perspective, we're like, what's the matter with you, parents? It's going to be so much fun. And from the parental perspective, it's like, are you serious? <laughs> and from God's perspective, he's saying, I'm keeping you from trouble. I'm keeping you from pain and loss and suffering. And we look at it and go, no, God's holding out on us. How did it work out for Adam and Eve? Did they do better after that? Was that an improvement of their lives once they ate of that? No. But that's what we do is we challenge God and we say, you're holding out on us, which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Why did Israel fail in the wilderness? Because they didn't believe that the promises of God were there. They believed that God was holding out on them. They believed that Egypt was going to be better, that the promised land was not going to be worth it, that God would not provide for them tomorrow, and that the wilderness that they were in was not important. It wasn't worth it. The sacrifice and the pain of going through the wilderness at that time, it wasn't worth it. Let's just get back to Egypt. Moses, didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt to leave us alone? Not bring us out here. That's ultimately what it is. And I just want us to ask, what is happening in our hearts that's causing these sinful outcomes? What is wrong in my heart that I said what I said? What is wrong in my heart that I have these impure thoughts? What is wrong in my heart when we follow sinful desires? What is wrong in my heart when we fall into adultery, divorce, sexual immorality, or other sexual sins? What is wrong in my heart when we have malice, bitterness, outbursts of wrath, anger, or other displays of evil against another person? It's not just simply, okay, stop saying that. Get under that. There's unbelief somewhere. There's this evil, unbelieving heart that the writer of Hebrews is warning us against. And what we need to do then is look into our hearts and look into our minds and consider what needs to be renewed. Or to press that a little bit further, what do you believe that God is holding back from you in your life that you continue to practice these things? Wouldn't that be a way to look at that? What am I thinking that God is holding out on me from so that I keep saying or doing these things or these impure thoughts or whatever it is, whatever sinful behavior it is, that these things keep happening? What is it about God that you don't believe? Isn't it interesting how the writer of Hebrews just dives underneath it and goes, 
Israel had it all, and they all fell. And I want you to see, he just told us from chapter 2-5 through chapter 3-6, we have it all. Look at the blessings we have. Don't lose it all. It's very possible. It turns out what seemed like a ridiculous question, who in here has an evil, unbelieving heart, is actually very easy to have. It's actually really easy to have. And there's a way to know. Look at the output. If sin is a constant output, then that speaks to what's going on in the heart. How many Bible scriptures tell us that? Where does sin come from? God's always telling us this. We just have to address that and go, there's something wrong in the heart. That's why I'm thinking that way. That's why I'm talking that way. That's why I'm acting that way. I can't answer what it is. Only you can answer that. What it is that's causing that unbelief. But here's what I can do. Is what the writer of Hebrews says to do. That actually our eternal security is a group project and a group effort. And what we will do is we will keep coming into each other's lives and saying, watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart. Watch out. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because sin is lying to you. It's telling you your sin is okay. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, it's not. It's actually an evil, unbelieving heart. Do not accept sin. Do not accept disobedience. Do not think it's okay because there's something underneath far more significant at stake. Why was Israel not allowed to enter into the rest? Verse 19. Because they had an unbelieving heart. What would keep us from enjoying all the rest which when I get back, chapter 4 is going to describe the rest that we have. This rest is still available. This rest is still open to us. What could keep us from it? Not addressing the heart. Will you allow that to only amplify why we need to be together? Why we're going to sing a song and we're going to have a closing prayer and announcements and you won't let that be alright. Let me fly to my lunch appointment now. Because this is that moment now when we get together that we encourage one another and exhort one another and correct one another and help each other and bear one another's words and go, all right, we got to do that. Don't think of it as you, you've punched your time clock. It's 11.45. Let's go home. It's done. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is our chance. And can we help you in any way in serving your Lord and Savior who came to this world and who died for your sins? This is why He did it. Is that he doesn't want you to be lost. This is why He gave His life. He's, he's calling you into this family. He's calling you into obedience because He loves you and He gave Himself for you. And the reason we get together, as Dan very well put, Worship God and exhort and encourage one another and edify each other. We need each other. And we need to be involved in each other. How can we help you do that?
I hope you'll see that this is a safe place because we'll all raise our hand and go, we are sinners right here, sinner, who needs the grace of God. We all need the grace of God. And we're here to help you do that. Won't you come to Jesus? Won't we come while we stand and while we sing?